0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 439, Dieppe was avenged. Last time, the people of Canada were shocked to learn the truth of the losses at Dieppe. Their waking moments were spent in a mixture of grief and anger. Anger at London, who clearly did not share all they knew before, during, and after the raid. But numbers don't lie. So if it truly was a failure, what else was being kept from them? But then the Canadians learned that the British were not the only ones towing the official line, that Dieppe had been worth it. A few days after the casualty list was finished being released via the newspapers, Canadian Minister of Defense James Ralston issued his official report. He reiterated that the raid was to gather information and that heavy casualties were to be expected in amphibious operations of this type. He ended with confirming that Dieppe itself had never been captured, but again the entire raid was vital to the general offensive program that would one day win the war. The civilians knew they couldn't get much more out of the British or Canadian governments. It's just that they were still in doubt if the intel gathered was worth the losses suffered. And proving, once again, that all politics are local, the conservative newspapers and commentators trashed the raid, as they did not support the liberal Mackenzie King's administration, whereas the more left-leaning publications remained quiet, or at the very least tacitly supported Canada's participation. But all this was simply sound and fury, signifying nothing. That is, until London and Berlin got involved. When Brigadier William Wallace Bill Southam of the Highlanders surrendered, he had on his person something he should not have. It was orders about dealing with German prisoners. Further, not only did he bring them ashore, a violation, he also failed to destroy them before being captured. Surely, he had a lot on his mind at the moment, but that's one of the jobs of an officer, to think in the middle of a storm. The order stated that whenever possible, prisoners' hands were to be tied, so they could not destroy documents, like Southam should have done. This was standard commando practice, but General Ham Roberts had been against it. It was demeaning, and to him, unnecessary. Either way, the Germans found this and soon announced that Dieppe prisoners would be equally shackled. But the German War Office said no. At least they in the West were keeping to the supposed code of honor. The matter was closed. Until it wasn't. A few weeks went by and then a commando raid was launched against the Channel Island of Sark. There, the German prisoners did have their hands bound. Berlin found out about this and tied the hands of their Dieppe POWs. Not to be outdone, London ordered that several Axis prisoners in Canada were to be equally manacled. The government in Ottawa asked London not to do this, but they were ignored. With the game of who could be crueler to their prisoners launched, the Swiss government and Red Cross got involved, trying to get both sides to agree to stand down but Berlin and London were waiting for the other to blink first, which they did not. That is, not until November of 1943. But it would ease up before then. The Germans would shackle the men only twice a day, or only during the daylight hours. As for the men themselves, their emotions swirling, the largest ones being shame, a sense of failure, and, of course, wanting to know the truth about the raid— These shackles were just one more thing to deal with during their captivity. As they had nothing but time, each man sought out something to distract himself or simply burn up the daylight hours. Many asked others to teach them a foreign language. Others focused on gathering a new skill. For example, Riley Commander Bob Labatt started embroidering. Some focused on escape, so started watching the guards to discern their patterns. What the vast majority of POWs did not do was talk about Dieppe. They were bitter and wanted to blame someone, but weren't sure who to point their anger at, which was equally frustrating. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all, You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub, and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Before the prisoners' letters were sent to their families, these censors had a look at them, of course, and they were told to gauge the men's morale. Most of the men did not blame themselves, their buddies, or their officers, and they felt they had gained much experience. One man wrote, I learned more at Dieppe than the army could learn me in ten years. He meant the actual fighting as an individual, certainly not how to conduct the war. Not that it mattered, as his hands were now shackled. The flip side of these letters was that the men must have known that the Germans, London, and Ottawa would read the letters before their families did, so it's difficult to gauge the sincerity of them. As for the Canadian people in general, their reactions showed them to be realists. Most people could understand war enough to know that things would not always go right, that their side would not win every battle. Indeed, before the end of 1942, there were few Allied victories. But that did not mean that the nation's ire wasn't searching for a target, as happens after a catastrophe. And the man who was held up to undeserved scrutiny was Lieutenant General Andrew McNaughton. He would go on in the army, but Dieppe would not be his own stumbling while in command. Back to the Canadian people, again, the war brought on Stoicism. The number of recruits dropped for a few weeks after the raid. There had been about 3,000 new recruits each week, but that number went just south of 2,000 before returning to previous levels. There was a war to win. As for the British people, their response was much more muted, and who can blame them, given everything they had suffered up to this point? And then... Prime Minister Churchill spoke of Dieppe just after a month-long recess. Now, no one expected him to publicly castigate his own troops or the Canadians, and he did not. Ironically, his speech came after his own narrow victory, as he had barely survived a vote of censure. First, the Prime Minister spoke of Operation Pedestal and ended that part of his speech with, Malta was successfully relieved and then came Dieppe. But the listener was hopefully paying attention because Churchill would spend less than 300 words on it. He called the operation a most gallant affair and thanked the Canadian troops. Then he thanked the Royal Navy for taking the men in and bringing most of them back. He then used the term reconnaissance in force. This was his attempt at muddying the waters, and thus far, he had not so much lied, but like a lie, he unfolded a tale well told. This is common in advertising, which, again, is not known for telling the complete truth. Then he left his narrow ledge, which was parallel to the truth, by saying, Fighter command had done so well, they wish they could repeat this every week. That remark he left right there, and admitted he had given sanction to the raid, as it was an indispensable preliminary to full-scale operations. Yet that was all he would say on the matter, as he would give no more details, as it was best that the enemy should be left to his own ruminations. With these words still hanging in the air, Labor Opposition Leader Arthur Greenwood could have roasted the Prime Minister, but he was loyal to the war effort. He accepted the Prime Minister's view as is, but neither man had counted on Another Canadian, Lord Beaverbrook, a brilliant, driven man, albeit a loose cannon. He was equal parts helper to Churchill, like when he was the Minister of Aircraft Production, but also a royal pain, like he was being now. As the owner of the largest newspaper circulation in the world, he had built up Lord Mountbatten. Now, he tore into him calling the entire affair a scandalous waste of his countrymen's lives. This should have hurt Mountbatten more, but as Beaverbrook was known for saying horrid things about a lot of different people, this dispersed the sting. No, Mountbatten only feared Churchill and the chiefs of staff, and as for the latter, they did not mention Dieppe at all during their next two meetings after the raid. Why? Because they had bigger fish to Fry, namely Operation Torch. At the moment, this was set for mid-October. Thus, they had to get on with it. But if Mountbatten thought he was out of the woods, he was mistaken, for criticism would come in the form of Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Alan Brooke. Though not the most intimidating-looking man on the planet, Mountbatten would soon learn to respect, if not fear, Brooke's brains, tongue, and candor. He wasn't called Colonel Shrapnel for nothing. Brooke had accompanied Churchill to the Middle East and now both were back in town. On August 29th, Brooke and Mountbatten were invited by the Prime Minister to Chequers for dinner. Should be nice. It was not. Over whatever food and drink were on the table, Brooke castigated the Dieppe raid while the other two men sat and listened. Shocked, Which was rare, Mountbatten stayed quiet, which was rare. But two days later, he sent a letter to Brooke, claiming to be dumbfounded at the harsh words of the planning of the raid, and that was his lordship's out. He focused on the planning, which had gone well enough, but ignored the results of that planning. In the letter, which was quite long, Mountbatten went through all the details of the evolution of Jubilee, in which he threw in every name, like Montgomery's, to help spread the responsibility or blame. He stressed that others pushed for certain things, like having enough air cover or why Dieppe was chosen, and though his refuting was thin, it would be repeated over the years and thus become reality. In fact, having been shaken by Brooke, in front of Churchill no less, who had follow up questions, Mountbatten realized. He had to get ahead of this thing, so commenced on a combined report on the Dieppe raid, which came out on October 15th. It was more of the same, now just on official stationery, and Churchill would not push back too much, that is, until December of that year. As to why, the Prime Minister may have been thinking of the post-war world, or maybe a part of his psyche could not let it go. Either way, near the end of the year, he sent a memo to General Hastings Lionel Ismay, his military advisor, and in that letter were detailed questions, a lot of them, about Dieppe, enough to make Mountbatten as uncomfortable as he was capable of being. One question ended with, At first sight, it would appear to a layman very much out of accord with the accepted principles of war to attack the strongly fortified town front. And the old bulldog wanted answers, answers that Ismay was to obtain. Thus, on December 22nd, Ismay wrote to Mountbatten, saying, Give me all you've got on Dieppe. However, his forward to the questions was an apology for even asking. Mountbatten, a political animal in a uniform, guessed that Churchill was looking for scapegoats. So he, in his written response, spread the blame far and wide. And thinking of posterity, much was laid at the feet of Bernard Montgomery. Next was General Carrer, But, to be sure, there was still enough blame for people like C&C Home Forces, General Paget and C&C Portsmouth, Sir William James, and, of course, the Chiefs of Staff themselves, who approved if not Jubilee specifically, then at least one of the planned raids prior. Believe it or not, these men started pointing fingers at each other in a professional way, of course. But the letter did its job. Brooke eased up, but Mountbatten did not. He made sure the report covered Churchill's specific questions. His lordship knew how to play the game and pointed out moments that were true enough like when the Army insisted the tanks be landed in front of Dieppe versus to either side. At the end of the day, and at the end of the report, Mountbatten blamed most of the planning on Montgomery and the Army. But there was a problem. Time had moved on. It always does. And soon, Monty was the hero of El Alamein, and Mountbatten and Combined Operations Headquarters had played a part in Operation Torch. The landing of Allied troops in North Africa, and that too had mostly gone well. Further, combined operations would be involved in the Sicily landings. Thus, Churchill the politician did not want to accuse these heroes of anything untoward. Not now. And time kept moving. Mountbatten tried to get in on the ground floor of the cross channel invasion whenever that happened. But it was decided that the yet unnamed Supreme Allied Commander would take control of that. But Albert, Victor, Nicholas, Louis, Francis Mountbatten need not have worried. He seemed to possess a charmed life. In August of 43, he would be made the Supreme Allied Commander Southeast Asia Command. Brigadier Bob Laycock would take his place, but... Combined operations was much reduced by then. There would be no more major raids by this entity, at least not alone. Still, blame had to be placed at someone's feet. And as London was full of Brits, the blame would go to a Canadian. But first, as it was Lieutenant General Carrere who had operational oversight of the raid, with Andrew McNaughton over him, it would be the latter that suffered. It didn't help McNaughton that Brooke thought little of his ability to lead, but it would be General Ham Roberts who was given most of the blame. He had been on the scene, so to speak, and did not play the game of getting along, so it was a perfect fit. That it was unfair is hardly germane. In April of 43, Roberts would be relieved of command of the 2nd Division and given a backwater post. Not tolerating such things, he left the army and his country after the war and went to live on the much more subdued Channel Island of Jersey. As for Mountbatten, fame and fate were not done with him, but as his story continues along with the war, we will get back to him. Ironically, after the war, when Churchill was writing his history, he asked for more information about Dieppe and Mountbatten's part in it, and again, Lord Ismay was to be the go-between. Yet Ismay told Churchill, well, you used the code word Jubilee in a dispatch when you were in Cairo, so you must have approved of the raid. But despite his age, Churchill did not remember it that way, and no paperwork supported this view. So in his writings, Mountbatten gets the credit, blame, for reviving the raid. Not the Chiefs of Staff and not the War Cabinet. And true to form, Mountbatten, when he learned of this, had Ismay alter the counting of casualties. Instead of saying there was a 67% casualty rate, as in those who died, were wounded, or went missing or captured, it was now only 18% because only the dead were counted. This is against standard practice, but it was Mountbatten's standard practice. What followed were more reports, then more reports, each trying to shift the blame, but leave it to Mountbatten to partially take credit for winning the war. He told an audience during a BBC documentary years later, The old Duke of Wellington has been credited with the saying, that the Battle of Wellington was won on the fields of Eton. I am quite sure the Battle of Normandy was won on the beaches of Dieppe. For every one man who died at Dieppe, at least ten or more was spared in the invasion of Normandy two years later. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you score points in an ongoing debate. But the debate would go on and take on a life of its own. For some, their putting forth their point of view would not stop until they died, and then others would take up the charge. Yet, in the end, it was a disaster, militarily and politically. But at its core, though there had been many cooks in the kitchen, at least Mountbatten has to take blame for forcing it through, which he did. After all, when Rudder was canceled, Torch had been agreed to, so Was there a need of a coastal raid in France, when there was about to be one, and more besides, in Morocco? As time went by, and D-Day came and went, Dieppe would be tied to it, as the latter was a success, because, some proclaimed, of the former, horrible as it was. And with each new observation, alternative history started to creep in. If only battleships had been used, if only there had been more large bombers from America, if only this, if only that. In the end, Jubilee was Mountbatten's project, and he did not want to see it die. And for that, many men instead would die. Postscript at 1010 a.m., September 1st, 1944, two Allied soldiers on motorcycles appeared on Rue Gambetta, a road south of Dieppe that leads deeper into the town. Seeing tricolor flags and windows, they moved forward. They were not greeted by Germans with guns, but by 20 women with lips. The soldiers were kissed over and over. This was turning out to be a good day. Then they were taken to the mayor, a man also kissed them. It was less nice, but appreciated. That afternoon, troops of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry started to arrive, again from the south. They were the spearhead of the 2nd Division that had been rebuilt since the raid. There had been 300 Dieppe veterans of the Hamiltons, but even that number had been reduced during combat, what, between Dieppe and D-Day. Within the 2nd Division were survivors of the Essex Scottish, the Royals, the Fusiliers Mont Royal, and the South Saskatchewans. Soon the entire division was in Dieppe and treated warmly by the locals. The mayor, Resistance leader Pierre Bies, stared at the men in uniform, and he noticed a wide range of emotions on their faces. The recorder of the Riley's War Diary noticed this as well and wrote one could not help but notice the mixture of strange emotions that night on the faces of the personnel who had visited the town previously. Some were gay, some were lost in reverie, but all enjoyed the real hospitality of the French people. Dieppe was avenged, and this celebration was a fitting close to the agonized scenes of two years ago. And each August of every year, these commandos... Canadians and British sailors returned to Dieppe to remember, yet their numbers dwindled as the years went by. Not that the observation and celebrations ended with their demise. The people of Dieppe were a part of this story, too, and it was they who gathered the dead and consecrated them and placed them in French soil. They tended the graves and gave these men their time, their thanks, and their love. For trying. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hi to some people who have written to me. Um, You'll probably hear some noise in the background because my dog, Finn, the producer, is here. So he's unpredictable. Anyways, so as far as members, I'd like to welcome aboard James Powell from Brentwood, Tennessee. Thank you very much, James, for becoming a member and supporting my... Questionable lifestyle. Uh, as far as donations, there's Gregory D. Cannon from East McKay, Queensland, Australia. Uh, thank you very much, Gregory. Gregor, if I may. <clears throat> sorry i apologize for that um there's a certain chap a gentleman also from australia who bought a churchill mug for his father i can't say any more than that because he hasn't gotten it yet obviously but i'll thank him officially later uh and then i got an absolutely fantastic hilarious uh, email from a gentleman colt richardson uh he he commented on my improvement as far as my delivery and other things um which is absolutely right. I was a nervous wreck. When I did my first episode, I literally paid my wife and children to leave the house. I sent them to a movie to record an 11-minute episode. I was so nervous. So anyways, uh, thank you, Colt, very much for that. And he's also related to James Madison, one of our former presidents, which and I attended James Madison University, so I feel like a connection. To Colt or something like that. Let's not get creepy. Anyway, um, his grandfather, Ambrose, was stationed in Tunisia. Uh, and also Colt became a member and donated. So just great guy all around. Colt, Colt's my guy. He uh, had me laughing. He had the audacity to mention that I occasionally mispronounce names. Um, but I forgive him. i have moved on from that. There were some tears. But we don't need to focus on that. So anyways, so we are officially done. And I don't mean to... Be, I, I, I'm purposefully being lighthearted because when I ended the episode that you just listened to, it took me like 17 takes. I was crying there at the end. Anyway, uh, make of that what you will. But anyway, so I'm just being lighthearted now because I've got to get through the rest of my day and I can't... cannot have 907... I'm trying to remember how many dead uh, people died that day... On the beaches of Dieppe. So anyway, um, so we will now, I'm now gearing up for the going back to the Eastern Front, the Ost Front. Uh, I'm doing a lot of reading and looking at my old notes. So I might put out like a standalone episode while I'm doing that, but that is where we're going and we're going to go deep into Russia, which Hitler did not do. <laughs> anyway, that was tacky. That don't, that was tacky. Anyways, so thank you for listening. And again, this is just me being very emotional after reading that. So I apologize. Uh, As always, take care, everyone.